Well, it is so good to be back here at Catalyst after a, a, a week on, in South Carolina with the family. That was wonderful and really appreciate you guys uh, being so faithful while my family and I were gone. Apparently, John just, and, and, and Rob just did a phenomenal job. Excellent, and we're really glad. It's, it's just amazing. This past, I was telling um, uh, my family that since I started ministry 20 years ago, it's the longest I've ever not preached. It's been a month that, that I didn't preach, and John and Rob just did an amazing job uh, doing that last series, and uh, <clears throat> it's really, really amazing to have such amazing talent and, and, and character on staff here where, where, in my opinion, which doesn't matter much, but in my opinion, the guys who aren't preaching normally are a lot better than some guys that are preaching normally. And, and so uh, it's just amazing. So I'm very thankful for them. We are in a brand new series called The Tension is Good. And this is a different type of series than we've ever done here at Catalyst. Um, it, the main thing today is that salvation is found in the tension between the supremacy of God on one hand and the free will of people on the other. Now, we'll explain that. That's kind of a, kind of a, a difficult concept, but we'll, we'll explain that. Like I said, this is a different type of series than we've ever done. Uh, the basis for the series is that there's seemingly contradictory statements in the Bible that, that, uh, that you can make a case for either one. And the tension, the truth is usually found in the tension between them. For example... Um, the, uh, in this series, we're going to talk about, is God a friend? Because Jesus says, I've not called you uh, servants, but friends. Or is God a king? Do we relate to him as a friend or as a king? Well, there's a tension between that, and the truth is somewhere in the middle. Uh, the second thing is, is, is God a God of wrath, which we see in the Bible? Or is he a God of love? And there's a tension between there. Um, is God, uh, are we supposed to mature in Christ? You know, um, my, my daughter just, uh, we just dropped my daughter off at college yesterday um, or, or on Friday. Are, uh, is she supposed to stay in my house until she's 60? No, we, we expect uh, our, our children to grow up and, and, and leave. And so are we supposed to grow up and become adults and mature in Christ? Or are we supposed to depend on him for everything? Well, the Bible makes a case for both. There's a tension. Um, are, what, what about the tension between grace where nothing that we can do can save ourselves? It's just the grace of God on one hand and the call for obedience. Well, does what we do not matter? Does what we do matter? There's a tension there. And so we're going to be talking about those types of issues and just a personal thing. Studying and preparing for this series has answered a lot of questions I've had in my life about God. And, it's, and I'm very excited about this. Today, we're talking about the tension between predestination and free will. In other words, does God control everything? Are we simply, is everything predetermined, or do people have free will? Do we, does God just save us and uh, save some people, or does, do we have to confess Christ as Lord and Savior? The Bible makes a case for both, so we're going to talk about that Today, so the extreme number one, the extreme left over here is what's called Calvinism reform. Everybody say Calvinism. Calvinism, okay, uh, or reform theology, and that is the predestination side. And over here is, oh, the extreme over here is what's called Arminianism. Ever say Arminianism. It just means free will. Let's just say free will. All right. Okay, so um, extreme number one, the Calvinist reform, Romans 8, 29 through 30, seems to say that this is the way it is. Look what it says. For those God foreknew, he also predestined 
to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among all the brothers and sisters. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, also glorified. So it seems like the Bible is saying that God already knew everybody who was going to become a Christian, who was going to be saved before the beginning of time. That's what it seems to say, right? That's the extreme over there. All right, and so the characteristics of the people that believe this, and the Calvinism reformed, the first, it says TULIP. TULIP is the acronym for the five things they believe. The first one is total depravity. What that means is that you and I are hopelessly lost. There's not one good thing about us at all. That's what Calvinism believes, okay? And, and the, I, I want to point to the Babylon Bee, which is the greatest news site ever, and where the, a Calvinist dog reminds his owner, no one is a good boy, okay? Uh, who's a good boy? Calvinist dog says no one is a good boy, okay? That's how, Calvin, that, that's how they think. There's no one that is good. The second thing is that unconditional election. These are theological terms I'll explain to you. Unconditional election means that you, that, that you are saved. If God says you are saved, no conditions, no nothing, unconditional, that's the way it is. Number three, Limited atonement, not everyone will be saved. God will only save a few people. That's what limited atonement means, okay? Uh, the third thing, fourth thing is irresistible grace, which means that even if you do not like God, you do not want to be a Christian, you do not want anything to do with him, you cannot resist his grace. His grace overwhelms you. You are saved anyway. It has nothing to do with humans of free will. It's all about the supremacy of God. And the fifth is perseverance of the saints, which means that we are called, if you are, if you are saved, you are called to persevere and press through um, uh, hard times and everything like that. That's what that means. Tulip, total, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Tulip. That's on this extreme over here. The extreme over here. But the, the pull attention is what's called Arminianism and free will. And what that means, in, in 2 Peter 3 through 9, uh, it seems like God wants us to choose. 2 Peter, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise to return as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. So the Bible says, well, it seems like God wants everyone to be saved. He's not going to select a few and, 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 and not select the others. So that's, what, that's the extreme over here. And uh, the extreme number two is that uh, uh, agrees with the Calvinist dog that all people are lost. There's nothing that we can do, uh, that, that, that we, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that it is you, up to you to choose the grace of God. The grace of God is available to you. Your salvation is available to everyone, but you must choose of your own free will. That's what it says there. All right, so the positives of both extremes, the positives of, of Calvinism over here in predestination is this. Number one, they th say they hold that God is supremely valuable. Over here in Calvinism, there's a lot of stuff that is excellent. And they emphasize the majesty and the value and the awesomeness of God, which a lot of times in our churches has been lost. Let's admit it. A lot of us don't really think God is that great. Most, not most, but many of us don't. Oh, we say we do, but we don't act like it. And over here in Calvinism Reform, they talk about the total supremacy of God, the value of God, that, that God is supremely valuable, also supremely powerful. You know, one of the biggest recurring problems in the Bible, as probably in your life, is when we as people start thinking we're bigger than we are. 
all right, in the Bible, uh, people start thinking of themselves as gods, that they can determine what is right and wrong, that they can look at the Bible and say, well, I like this and I don't like this, okay? That's what a lot of us do. Brings back to the, and, and, our, and Calvinism over here says that's out, that's out of bounds. God is supremely powerful. We need to respect that. Okay? Uh, the positives of, of Arminism free will, though, is that we see a respect from God for us as people. He doesn't treat us like robots. He gives us a choice. He gives us a choice to choose him or walk away from him. I don't know about you, but when I'm forced to do something, my mind is not really engaged in it. If I was forced to marry someone, I doubt I would love that person. Seriously, I need to choose. Because that, and that, that's, the, that's the positive of that, ex, that extreme. But the problem with both extreme, with, with Calvinism and reform, the, problem, the reason we can't go all the way over here, there are problems. Number one, why would we engage in the Great Commission? How many of you all signed up for a mission trip to be a sender or a goer a couple weeks ago? Most of you did. Okay, why would we do the Great Commission? If God has already determined who is saved and who is lost, why would Jesus tell us to go in all the world and make disciples? Because it's already been determined. It would be, uh, I, I would hate to be a Calvinist preacher and preach and people come to Christ and say, hey, hey, what, what, what do I do? Well, unfortunately, some of you are saved, some of you are lost, nothing you can do about it. I, I, that, there's a problem there. The second thing, why, if everything's already set, should we live as God wants us to live? If there is no benefit to being faithful to Jesus, if, there is no, if, if there's no hope, if you are predestined to be lost, why would you live as a Christian would live? I don't get it. So that's a problem with that extreme. The problem with this extreme over here, with the free will, is that we tend to put ourselves in the throne we put ourselves as sovereign. We say that humanity, we're in charge, and God, you're a nice little addendum to us. You're our butler, God. You, you just kind of serve us. We'll kind of keep you out of the way until we need you. Then we'll ring a bell, and you come running and serve us. That happens a lot of times. That's the way a lot of people treat God. Someone said that nothing improves your prayer life like big trouble. Well, that happens over here. Because we think of God as a butler, a servant. That's a problem with the both extremes. Okay? So the truth, though, is in the tension between both. And I've figured out five things that I have found after studying these things. These are things that I've found I could make a biblical case for. Everyone has to make up their own mind as to where they are. But these are the things that I am proposing for this church that we believe. Okay? The first thing is this. is that God is supreme in everything. God is supreme in everything. We are not on the throne. Humans, be, human beings, how foolish to think that we could pass judgment on God. That we could look at God and make him demand, him demand an accounting of himself. That we could put him on the docket and make him explain himself. We are not in that position. God is supreme in everything. Colossians 1, 15-20, read along with me. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things on heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. Do you hear that? That God is supreme over all these things. You mean he's bigger than the president? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And in, he is the head of the body, the church. 
Stop right there. You mean that Jesus actually tells the church what to do? Yes, he does. And when the church deviates from what, she, what, what uh, Christ teaches, that's when we get in trouble. Okay? He's the head of the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that he might have supremacy in all things. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him and, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether things on earth or things are heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That is one of the most beautiful descriptions of Jesus, of God, I've ever seen. It's one of my favorite passages I go back to, and, and, and whenever I start thinking I'm too big or I'm, I'm bigger than my britches, then I read that, and it puts me in my place. I love that. God is supreme in everything, and we would do well, people, to remember that. We would do well to remember that we are not God. And we would do well to remember that his word is supreme and not ours. If there are areas of your life that you're living in disobedience to Christ, and most of us have them, it's time to stop. We cannot, minimize the, we cannot minimize God at all. He is supreme in everything. His word is what we do. His ways are what we do. That's the way it is. He is supreme in everything. I think that we need to stop minimizing God. Maybe it's time that we actually start giving God the respect he deserves. The second thing, because that seems to be taken from this extreme over here, that God is supreme. And that message doesn't hit much in churches like we have, who tend towards the Armenian side. The second thing is this. The greater the love, the less the control. I don't know about you all, but I've been kind of rocked by the two shootings yesterday. Shooting in El Paso and a shooting in Ohio. I believe there are 20 people dead at, as of, as of, when I read the article. Maybe I don't know what's happened since then in El Paso and nine or so in Ohio yesterday. And the question is always asked, why didn't God stop it? Isn't he in control? Isn't he, uh, uh, why, why did he not stop it? Why didn't he do something? Well, this is why. Because the greater love you have, the less power you have. Let's think about a hostage situation. Let's say that I come home and someone has broken into my house and a gunman uh, is standing behind my wife with a gun to, her, gun to her head. Who has all the power in that situation? Not me. Why? Because I love my wife. He doesn't care about her. He has all the power. He can do whatever he wants. See, the more you love, the less control you have. Think about an imbalance. Let's go back to, uh, some of you guys are still in high school, but most of you aren't. Let's go back to high school, and let's take the, uh, the stereotypical high school relationship where we got the uh, senior quarterback of the football team and a freshman girl cheerleader. She thinks he's awesome. He doesn't care about her. Who has all the power? He does. He can treat her badly, he can treat her well, he can, he, it doesn't matter. However he treats her, she'll come running back because she loves him more than he loves her. Whoever loves the most has the least power. True? Well, that's the true. If God loves you, God loves this world, the less control he has. Satan hates this world. He hates you, he hates me. He has all the power in the world, he can do whatever he wants. And you say, well, but, but, but Satan's not in control of this world. Yeah, he is. 
Hate to break it to you. He is. And you're like, well, Dave, are you minimizing God? No, those aren't my words. Those are Jesus' words. Jesus referred to Satan as the ruler of this world. Why? Does that, be, does that mean God doesn't have power? No, no, no. That means that God is the one who loves. Okay? And if God is love, he's not in control. Jesus referred to Satan as the prince of this world, as a ruler of this world. Now, his promise is that in time, at the end, everything we put to right, that he wins in the end. But for right now, Satan is in control of this world. Because I, I want to tell you, if God was in control of this world and shootings like that happened, I have a, I'd have a major problem, wouldn't you? I mean, if God is in control, it's probably doing a, it looks like he's doing a pretty bad job. My goodness. People that say that God's in control, no, 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 he's not. He has, because of love, ceded that power. And Satan, who does not love, has full, has full reign. Marriage is an object lesson how God relates to his people. Ephesians 5.32 says this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Because who, whoever loves the most has the least amount of power. All right? So the greater the love, the less control. That is how God can be supreme in everything, and yet all of this evil happen. Okay, the more I love someone, the more I don't control them. Okay? That's the truth in the tension between the power of God and the free will of people. That's where the truth is. The third thing, well, I've already said this, God is not the ruler of this world. Luke 4, 5 through 6, the devil led him up, talking about Jesus, led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. He said to him, I will give you all their, their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Satan says, listen, I've got it all, and I can give it to you if you just worship me, Jesus. And Jesus says, away from me, Satan. Do not tempt the Lord your God. John 16, 9 through 11 Jesus says this about sin because people who do not believe in about righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned, talking about Satan, okay? He is not the ruler of this world. And if we start thinking that he is, then we minimize the love of God. We minimize his character. Fourth thing is that this, this is the truth and the tension, is that we must choose to follow Christ of our own free will. We must choose all right, Acts 2, 37 through 40 says this. When the people heard this, uh, Peter stands up at, the, at, at Pentecost and he preaches the first Christian sermon. Talks about how people are responsible for killing Jesus and, and how he, he sacrificed himself to be, the, to, to be the savior of the world. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said, Peter, to the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Now, Peter did not say, well, there's not much you can do because God's already determined who's going to be saved and who's not. So you're out of luck. So those of you that are saved, good going. Those of you that aren't, see you later. That's not what he said. He said this. He said, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, that's you and me, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So the beautiful truth and the tension that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves because God's grace saves us and yet we must be obedient to take that step to choose. The truth is in the tension. All right? Those of you all have, who have never made that decision, 
who have never made that decision, I want you to hear this next one. Number five, we must live lives worthy of the grace we have received. We must live lives worthy of the grace we have received. How many of you all have ever given a gift to someone that was not appreciated? Anybody ever given a gift to someone and they didn't like it, they hated it, you really sacrificed, you really uh, went, you thought they would love it, you give it to them and it's in a yard sale next week? Anybody ever done that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think everybody has. How'd that feel? How'd that feel? Did it feel good? How many of you parents have done things for your children that are not appreciated? Yeah, that's pretty much what parenthood is, isn't it? Seriously. And stuff. I mean, how many times have your children come up to you? See, my children do this all the time because they're perfect. Um, they come up and say, you know what, Dad? Thank you so much for paying for the air conditioning. I mean, we would be lost without it. I really appreciate that. How many of y'all, has anyone ever had their child thank you for air conditioning? No? One. Maybe one. Wow. Okay. How many of you all have ever, you know, you know Dad, with, without you and Mom, there would be no food on this table? I wouldn't have a room. I wouldn't have a door to slam when I'm mad at you. You know, I, I mean, how many of you all have had this utter gratitude coming back to you for all the things you do for your kids? Not much. Not much. We all know how that feels. Well, I can imagine how God feels. When he went to the cross to save you and I from an eternity in hell. And I don't say that lightly. Eternity. Eternity. I can barely make it through an election season without losing my mind. Can you imagine an eternity? An eternity in hell that you and I deserve. And for us to just kind of wad it up, throw it away. Not even saying thank you. We must live lives worthy of the grace we have received. But not because we think that our obedience to Christ will save us. Please hear that. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. It's only the grace of God. We don't follow Jesus. We don't pray. We don't study the Bible. We don't come to church. We don't worship because we think that by doing that, that will earn us points with God. It doesn't. I hate to break it to you. To all the legalists out there, it doesn't work. The reason we engage in the Great Commission, the reason we prioritize church on Sunday morning, the reason we engage in Christian fellowship, the reason we forgive is not because it will save us. It is out of profound gratitude to God. You know what a Christian is? You all want to know what a Christian is? A Christian is someone who lives a life of gratitude to Jesus for what he's done. Basically looking at Jesus and saying, listen, after what you did for me, there's nothing I won't do for you. I know that, that going on a mission trip or forgiving my enemies, that's not going to save me. Only your, only your death on the cross and resurrection can do that. But because of that, I will follow you anywhere because of gratitude. If you are a Christian and you're not grateful, you don't have gratitude, I would make the argument you're not a Christian. 
You cannot look at the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection, what is, you have been saved from, and not live a life of gratitude to God. So it is gratitude that motivates the believer in Christ, nothing else. We don't do things out of obligation because we think that it will save us or out of, or out of legalism or anything like that. We do that because we are grateful. Gratitude should be the overarching motivation of the believer. So why are you going on mission trips? Gratitude. Why are you forgiving your family members? Gratitude. I'm going to follow everything Jesus said for me to do because I know what he saved me from. And I look at the Bible and I look at what I had coming to me because of my sins and what I've been saved from. There's nothing I won't do. That's what the Christian says. We must never minimize the awesomeness of God. We must never begin thinking that he is less than he is. We must never begin to think that sin is no big deal because it is. But on the other hand, we must never forget that God loves us with everything that he is. That we must never forget that ultimately we have to choose him because there's a real sick way of thinking permeating our churches. I'm going to invite the band to come on back up. There's a sick, and I'm going to just call it a heresy, permeating our churches today, permeating American culture, and this is what it is. We actually have created a non-biblical third category for people. The Bible says there are only two types of people. They're lost and they're saved. They're people who have been reconciled back to Jesus and people who haven't. People here are going eternal life. These people are going to hell. That's what the Bible says. But we in America have created a third category. We've got the lost, uh, the saved people here and the lost people here. And then in the middle are kind of the people that just really haven't done much bad. And they're just kind of hanging out in the middle and they're okay. That's a lie straight from hell. It's not in the Bible. You are either saved or you're lost. Jesus has not given us this heretical third option that a lot of us like to think that we are in, or our family members are in, or our friends are in. Okay, we must choose. Because if we have not chosen to follow Christ, we are lost. And so if you have never made that commitment today, if you've never made that commitment in your life, if you are not saved, if you have never chosen of your own free will the grace of God, I'm asking, I'm begging you to do that today. I'm asking you to do that. Jesus, Peter said it, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is available to all, but it must be reached out and taken. A gift doesn't become a gift when it's given. A gift becomes a gift when it is received. And so I'm asking you to do that today. We're going to continue in our worship and right now is the time to do some business with God. Find someone, find a, a Christian around you, find an elder, find a staff member, whatever. Pr let them pray with you, but do not walk out those doors without, without deciding what to do with Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your, for your awesomeness. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for calling us to you. Your gospel message is the most amazing thing in the world, and we are so grateful for your, for your son's death on the cross. 
I pray that if there are people out here today who have never reached out and taken that gift that you offer, that they would do that today. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.